You're listening to Energy Insiders, a weekly update on clean energy and climate policy with Renew Economies editor Giles Parkinson and leading energy analyst David Leach. Energy Insiders is brought to you by Evergen, providing cutting-edge energy management software for battery optimisation, virtual power plants and distributed energy resources. And Pylon, helping solar installers and retailers design high-resolution solar proposals in minutes. Hello and welcome to this latest episode of the Energy Insiders podcast. My name is Giles Parkinson. I'm the editor of Renew Economy. And joining me as usual is ITK Principal David Leach. David, how are you? I'm well, thanks, Giles. Uh, enjoying the electricity transition uh, and spring weather here in, in Linfield, New South Wales, where the azaleas are out in a wonderful way, along with a lot of other plants. Spring is a wonderful time in this, this part of the world. Um, and we're off to an island today. Well, we are off to an island, talking to an Irish man from, from Ireland, um, now on a new island in Tasmania, and that was going to be some sort of very clever joke, but it didn't turn out that way. Um, just talking about springtime, David, um, a lot of um, renewable records falling and minimum coal demand, um, particularly in New South Wales. I thought that one was actually one that struck me last Saturday. Um, a record minimum in New South Wales, a record that hadn't fallen since Boxing Day in 2013, certainly accelerating the transition away. Um, from coal, and it was interesting to note Matt Keane, the Energy Minister, talking um, last week about um, his willingness to exit coal by 2030, um, should it be required. And um, according to the UN and most climate scientists, it most definitely is required. Well, not only is it required, I think the uh, economic forces are going to make it happen. Uh, you know, I hate to say I told you so, or, uh, but uh, we have been <laughs> predicting that these low prices and uh, low demand in spring and talked about the seasonality of wind and solar and uh, we're seeing more evidence of that every year and and I think the and market and everyone is just going to have to adjust to that as, as we as we go forward. Yes and it was interesting we actually got a financing of a new solar farm um, in New South Wales I think actually came through today um, AMP Energy which is a Canadian outfit which has got quite a big plan in South Australia bought the Hilston solar farm from was going to be bought by Energy, the German company, a couple of years ago. So it's kind of been sort of sitting there wandering around, um, waiting for a grid connection and more importantly, some finance. But that got that through today. So just starting to trickle in a few financing deals, which is um, probably good to see. We saw one with a Dulaca wind farm, I think, last week too. Um, another contract with Cleanco. Um, so that was interesting. But look, um, as you said, David, um, Tas um, Ireland, Tasmania, Tasmanian Networks, really interesting situation down there, an island grid, an already renewable grid, but big plans to go possibly 200% renewable energy, um, wants to make some new links to the mainland, and also um, big possibilities in hydrogen, I can't think of a better state to go EVs, electric vehicle, before everybody else, just simply because it is already 100% renewable. Anyway, Earlier on this week, we caught up with the new CEO of Tasmania Networks, Sean McGoldrick, and um, this is how it went. Sean McGoldrick, our CEO of Tas Networks, thanks very much for joining the Energy Insiders podcast. Good to speak to you and your uh, your listeners again, Giles. Yes, look, um, I think the last time I caught up with you in person, you were at Western Power, the uh, head of network development there, or some such title, and um, we also uh, talked asset to Asset manager. I was asset, asset manager. manager. That's right, and I remember that whole sort of diagram you were showing me about the decentralisation of the grid That's and things right. like that, which was... Which the was modular grid. The modular grid, whatever happened to the modular grid. Oh, well, it's get... going strong out there. It is. Thousands of battery systems being planned, and energy storage systems, and... We're under, they're undergrounding in the urban centres, which was uh, making sure that we, we got yeah. the best out of capacity for electric vehicles <laughs> and so on. And I, I didn't mean to cut in so quickly, and I'll, I'll cut out again, but uh, modular grid is a much better term than decentralised network semi-autonomous microgrids, which is what I've been uh, trying to invent an acronym, but I've, I just now, I've learned it's modular grids. Back modular well, grid, I, yes, here we go. I, I haven't licensed that, so you're, you're welcome to use it, David. <laughs> We might just license it just before we actually sort of publish this uh, podcast. And um, then, Sean, you um, you uh, um, spent some time at Transgrid um, yes. with a similar title. I don't think there's anything about modular grids there, but it was more well, about it was more um, major project development and helping to build out the ISP in New South Wales. Right. And now you're at TAS Networks. Um, so congratulations on your appointment. What's it like Thank to sit you. in the high chair now? It's you know what it's it feels very good. I've had a great welcome here from all the Taz Network staff. Uh, our, I've 
gotten out and about now, meeting our customers, uh, talking to uh, our owners, uh, lots of ambitions down here. And Taz Networks is right in the middle of what is a very significant economic transition and power system transition. So it feels good to be in the middle of it, Giles, to be honest. Yeah. Well, tell us tell us about your priorities then. I mean, what's sort of top of your inbox and what are going to be the major things that you're going to be dealing with in the next um, little while or a couple of years? So there's part of it that's transition, uh, traditional and part of it is more innovative. So the first thing is, as always, keep stuff safe and reliable. Um, that's the core job. Make sure that all Tasmanians are safe, especially our staff who are working on the assets continually in all sorts of weather, storms. It's very important that we deliver on our mandate safely, but that we also are have a reliable and secure power system because it's so central uh, to the whole economy. Um, lots of people, lot, it's a high level of electrification here for heating and everything in Tasmania. So it's it's very much that core mandate of safe and reliable. But of course, affordability is a, a very significant issue. Um, there's a lot of energy inequality and energy poverty, dare I say, here in in um, in Tasmania. So it's always about keeping it affordable for our lower voltage customers. And from an industrial point of view and a commercial point of view, uh, energy costs are uh, an important element in the overall cost stack. And we want to keep Tasmanian industry and commerce uh, competitive, so we we have to do our our piece in driving energy costs right. down. Uh, my owner, uh, the government, the state government here in Tasmania, is very passionate about keeping energy prices low. They've cut energy prices at the domestic level uh, by o- over by over four percent in recent years, and. On the industrial end, on the transmission uh, side, they've taken about $80 million worth of um, costs out uh, a, on that end of the business. So it's reduced by about 36, 37%. Mm. So, and they've done that because they want to make sure the economy regenerates and it's given it the best chance of success. Yeah. Sure. Just, just, not... just on that one, one quick point before, uh, you know, in the end, though, the, you've got a, the lowest return on assets. Uh, uh, of all the network businesses in Australia, as measured by the Australian Energy Regulator, uh, you, you don't have any ambition to increase. You're happy to be at the at the bottom end of the scale there? Look, um, we are profitable, and it's important that we're profitable. But most important of all, beyond mere figures associated with RABs and rate of returns and profit, is that we're sustainably profitable and that we do our part in, in the economy here so that it's overall best for Tasmania. Um, you, you know, our, certainly uh, we have a challenge on affordability and we always have to have our eye on efficiency and to be efficient. But with respect to RAB, I think we, we enter into the regulatory fray as we always do. Uh, we're working under our current regulatory determination until uh, 2024, we'll, we'll, we have a new submission then that will run from 24 to 29. I think the nature and character of that regulatory period is going to be very different because we are in the middle of a really significant transition in the power system. So what we do uh, now, what our rate of return is now, what projects we invest in now will be different than the upcoming period where I think there's a whole lot of things have got to change. Um, so I, I, I think it's less, David, about the pure number in the RAB, more about the sustainability of the business, and more that we're delivering overall for society and making sure that we bring the power system through this once in 50 year transition successfully. And by successfully, I mean that we keep being safe, reliable, and the affordability piece is still there. And no matter what technology ar- it, ar- it arrives, be it at the distributed energy end or at the uh, large-scale renewable energy end, that Tasmanians get the best out of their power system despite that transmission. But uh, because of that transition and because we've managed it well. Mm. 
Let's talk about some of these projects because there's a fair bit on happening in Tasmania in terms of sort of you know some of these little grand plans and this sort of technology change. I guess one of the most important ones and one that's been identified in the integrated system plan is the proposed Marinus link. Now this could be up for two sort of 750 megawatt links um, from Tasmania to the mainland. Um, I think plugging in in the Latrobe Valley. Um, tell us about where you're at with that. And um, it, I mean, it's an interesting one because you can sort of see what the sort of logical argument for it is. But there's a lot of people who dispute whether this is actually the best value for money. And I guess we get to some of the social license issues later on as well. So, well, let me let me start out by saying where it's at. It's passed the RIT-T uh, test. So it, it's demonstrated that it is... Um, uh, a good value for the whole of the NEM, the benefits associated, the net benefits associated with building Marinus Link on the timeline outlined by the integrated system plan. Uh, sure, we have benefits everywhere from Queensland through to South Australia and every NEM jurisdiction in between. So it's overall, it improves the affordability of it drives down the pool price it improves the reliability and security of the overall NEM, and it allows Tasmania to make a very significant contribution in terms of climate change, reducing our climate contributions overall in Australia by 70 million tonnes, um, the equivalent of about half a million cars off the road. That's the single biggest contribution from any jurisdiction to climate reduction. That only happens when you have Marinus Link. In addition, um, you know what's going on in the power system. I have renewable energy zones. I have three, no, actually, I have three on island and one offshore. I have four renewable energy zones with very significant amounts of wind energy coming into uh, Tasmania. I have a burgeoning hydrogen industry that's going to occur in the next couple of years. And I have the Battery of the Nation project that Hydro Tasmania is going to invest in. All of those things on a small island. My, my peak native load that happened 11 years ago for five minutes was 1,800 megawatts. My average load here on the island is 1,200 megawatts. And if I have thousands of megawatts of generation and load coming in, the only way with intermittent energy, a significant part of that, the only way I can make this equation stack up on island is if I have Marinus Link. And that's not even to mention the benefits that we would have, as I've said, about carbon reduction, about greater facilitation of green energy uh, across that link. I think it's a, a, a very, probably the most important uh, interconnector we will see in our lifetimes. In general, sorry, sorry. Let's, as I understand it, you've done your RIT T test and PACR, which is the next step, and we've ended up as as um, as Giles mentioned with a four billion dollar project uh, of two seven seven two by seven fifty DC links built in twenty twenty seven and twenty twenty nine. But the un totally unresolved question. Um, as I might add, with the with the um, uh, copper string too, is who's actually going to pay for it? What can you tell us about that at the current thinking? So at at the moment, what we're looking at is we have um, we as you said we passed the RIT test. We're in the uh, the next phase of development of the project, and we're going to bring it forward as a structured project. A key element in that is how the costs are shared for the project. So tradition and practice uh, on in the NEM is that you share the costs on a jurisdictional basis. So you might uh, recollect the recent uh, Project Energy Connect, the transgrid developed between New South Wales and South Australia. New South Wales covered its costs. Uh, South Australia covered its costs. And uh, that was how it's been done. Unfortunately, in the situation with Marinus Link, it's, uh, it's quite a substantial cost for a project, but delivering very significant net benefits. Um, if we were to split it 50-50, it just simply doesn't make sense because on a population basis, Victoria has approximately 24% of the uh, Australian population. Tasmania has 3%. 
if I'm to take 50% of the of the cost of the project and can only spread it over a small industrial uh, transmission base with only 3% of the population, Victoria ca- takes the other 50%, they've 24%. And you know that means that 73% of the rest of the population of Australia, approximately all of those other named jurisdictions don't contribute to the cost, but get very real benefits in terms of lower pool price. That's not equitable. That doesn't make sense. And that sort of imbalance would ensure that this project wouldn't get up, wouldn't be developed, couldn't be developed, because it would just place too great a burden, particularly on my transmission customers. So we're looking for a much more equitable solution here that will ensure that this very important project gets up. It's important for Tasmania. I believe it's even more important for continuity of supply in Victoria and overall climate uh, hitting climate targets and hitting reduction in emissions uh, around Australia. So who ends up then paying for it? Yet to be determined. Uh, where there is a lot of conversation going on at the moment. Um, and I think we, we will need to see clarity, clarity on this in the coming months. Mm. Linked with the Marinus link, and I think there's been a few, I, I do want to touch on the sort of the social license because it is an issue now. We're seeing it in Victoria. We're seeing it in New South Wales with some of the large transmission projects. Now, Marinus has the benefit of going sort of subsea, but um, to make Marinus work, you need other transmission lines linking in with some of the big projects that you sort of alluded to. And there's already some issues being expressed in um, Tasmania and some sort of community groups. Um, opposing or expressing concern about some of those transmission lines. Um, what can you tell us about that? Because it, it does risk being a problem. And can, can we put these things underground? Um, so that's so obviously... look, developing transmission infrastructure, be it overground, overhead or underground, is never the most popular thing to do in, in any community, in any part of the world. Um, but I think it's important that... Overall, we see this in the context of what we're trying to achieve here. We're trying to achieve a government policy in terms of 200% renewable energy targets. We're trying to secure reliable supply for the overall economy, for, those, for all of our consumers. We're trying to do it in the most cost-effective way. Uh, so we're doing it within the context of this is an optimal development. And certainly on island here in Tasmania, to cope with renewable energy zones and Marinus Link and hydrogen loads, we are going to have to develop our backbone infrastructure. We're going to have to extend it. We're going to have to reinforce it. Um, the Northwest Transmission Development, which is associated with particularly with Marinus, but also with renewable energy zones and, and indeed hydrogen, um, that's going to affect about 200 landowners here in Tasmania. Um, those local communities we are engaging with, we're going to work closely with, and what we're trying to do is find rooting solutions, find mitigation that will work for those communities that will allow them to host our infrastructure for the next, next 50, 60, 70 years. Um, this, is, this is nationally important infrastructure. It's been built uh, as cost-effectively as we can, and it's been built as sensitively as we as we can. There's a lot of permitting work to do, environmental permitting. There's a lot of community engagement we have to do. But that's just part of the job of developing any sort of an in, infrastructure. We, we will build fit for purpose. We're, what we're trying to do is find a way to do this as efficiently as we can. We, we, we simply can't go underground for much of this infrastructure. But what we will try to do is co-locate it with our existing assets, um, work sensitively in terms of easement extensions, work with the, the people who are the prime, who have the primary producers, who, whose main purpose is to farm that land typically, work with them to make sure that we don't interfere with their primary business um, and mitigate where we can. So Sean, um... Uh, you know, I think social license is, is, I think we all think it's a very important thing. And 
uh, I'd like to make a bad joke about it. You know, the, the COVID vaccines, the reasons the little machines don't go off in your brain after you've had one is because you haven't stood close enough to a transmission line. Uh, but I think that's the sort of politically incorrect joke that often gets me into trouble, so I'm not going to make it. <laughs> but what, what, what I, I just wanted to ask, I mean, you talk about the uh, backbone and it's important, I think, and also uh, listeners may not be fully aware that wind in Tasmania has both a high capacity factor and also is uh, very lowly correlated with wind in South Australia and even Victoria, exactly. so that it's a, got a national portfolio benefit that I think is uh, very attractive when you look at it. The question I wanted to ask is back on the Humble Distribution Network, and because uh, I just don't look at Tasmania often enough, but one of the things I get to is you talk about the backbone, but what about the nerves? And by this I mean like communicating metres and, uh, and the IT that's required to manage the, uh, a modern distributed uh, modular network where, where, where's the state of play and how much of your uh, your household's points of presence and businesses actually have you know time of use communicating meters so uh, a good deal um, i just want to confirm what you say first of all about the rich wind resource here in the island we're fortunate or unfortunate depending on your point of view to be subject to two different wind systems weather patterns one over the west coast one over the east coast and it's rare that one or other of them are not blowing. Um, so even on the small, relatively small island here, we have a significant wind uh, resource, but diversity in the wind resource. On, on, on your question about the uh, distribution entity, there has been um, an on for a few years now, there's been an ongoing uh, rollout by the uh, retailers and uh, on the island here of smart meters, like in many jurisdictions in the NEM. Uh, that is being uh, taken up progressively. Uh, those meters, we are already working with them for all sorts of technical reasons as a network, including early detection of broken neutrals and other uh, safety issues. Um, but there's no doubt that as we get a greater penetration of batteries and solar in uh, in Tasmania or even micro wind, wind turbines that we will be able to move towards a distribution system operator concept here it's it's uh, and having that data having those meters is incredibly important just for your information we have 25,000 homes already here on the island that have solar installed um, and we are having, we're beginning to see an uptake on household batteries. And with, with smart meters in place, that allows us to get the best out of that in terms of allowing greater and greater uh, penetration into, um, uh, in, in, into our distribution network of new technologies. Um, and hopefully we will be able to work cooperatively with house owners so that we can use that beneficially to stabilize the power system when we need it. So yes, um, we, we, we are rolling out smart meters. It has been going for some years. Uh, we've uh, hundreds of thousands of them that are, are around the system at the moment, and they are communications enabled. And so I'll hand back to Giles in a second, because there are other big questions that I think people are more interested in, but I don't get a chance to talk to distribution people often enough. And you know, I've been thinking about the concept that we have in Australia, the separation of the retail and the distribution system. And you mentioned this term distribution system operator. And it seems to me that the way we've set it up, uh, you know, there's a lot of duplicated IT costs, uh, duplicated call centres. I mean, that's great for jobs, which is all anyone ever cares about. Uh, but uh, uh, do you really, I'm just asking in general, you know, if you're starting afresh, do you, do you think it's it's the, with all the distributed resources that we've got in networks, perhaps less in Tasmania, uh, that it's really the, the best model going forward? Or, or would it be better if, you know, the same person was doing the retailing and the networks, but then you don't get the competition? I just don't know what the answer is. Really. So, so um, look, I, I, I'm, I'm definitely on uh, the end of the spectrum that favours competition in retail. Uh, let me just go on the record as saying um, Taz Networks as a DNSP has a fantastic relationship with its with its retailers and they have call centers that deal with their issues. We have call centers that deal with our issues and, and they are different. But if somebody inadvertently calls the incorrect 
call center, they just flick it over to us and or we flick it over to them and, and we deal with it. And we, we have um, in TAS Networks, our call center is adjacent here to my uh, s- uh, system operation center, great degree of, uh, of sharing. But it's, um, I think it's horses for courses, David. I think we, we do different things. A distribution system operator is really about maximizing the use of the, uh, the wires broadly so that we don't overinvest and we make use of new technology and telecoms. Um, in this regard, uh, I also have a telecoms uh, network that crosses the island here, and that's made make, we make good use of that, again, for network operation and safety reasons, but we can also use it in a distribution system operator sense. Now, we are talking about concepts of the future here, but there's no doubt that greater and greater penetration of renewable energy into the distribution system is going to occur. And we need to be able to monitor and control and share data in a way that will make sure that we're that we're investing optimally in the future of those networks. EVs is, is a classic example. So if you take, um, we're gonna get you know, a greater penetration of renewable, of uh, electric vehicles in Australia as the years go by. I'm making typically on the distribution system, you know, 40, 50 year investment decisions. I have to take EVs into account now when I'm making those investment decisions because I won't get to make another investment decision on the distribution network in those 40 or 50 years. So I have to be confident about what I'm doing. I have to know where the penetration of EVs is likely to be and how to reinforce the system. Thankfully, as a distribution system operator or a distribution network service provider, I have the power to make intelligent decisions. And I can decide, for example, that in an urban setting where I'm likely to get EVs, um, I can invest in undergrounding in uh, some of those older servers that have infrastructure above, above ground. It'll be a safer network. It'll be a secure and more reliable network and it will have greater capacity for EVs. I need to be making those decisions now that will cope with the next 50 years when, of course, every one of us is going to have EVs. Mm. And it seems to me that um, Tasmania has got this unique opportunity um, just both for electric for electric vehicles for a start because it starts off with a grid which is basically zero emissions. Um, yes. Um, but but tell us a bit more. You've talked about green hydrogen. You've actually alluded to the offshore renewable energy zone, and um, we've just sort of you know we've actually just revealed in the last couple of months that there's actually some um, serious inquiries into offshore wind farms, possibly off burning and things like that. So tell me where we're at with the um, offshore wind, and um, and can you bring us up to date for what you know of the various hydrogen proposals? Because I know that Origin and I think Fortescue also, are, um, and, and and obviously others are making. Um, deep inquiries there so look uh, uh, from from a very selfish point of view uh two TAS networks hydrogen is just another electrical load uh, it's a big electrical load it's a big new customer i like big new customers it allows me to spread my costs and uh, make sure that we we all get a better deal it's also a nice electrical load in that I can, it's, it's easy to control and it can help us out when we have system disturbances. So uh, aside and apart from the, all, the macroeconomic impacts on the economy, which are, are quite fantastic, uh, there's every reason for me as, a, as a, uh, a power system person to love hydrogen. And I want it located here in Tasmania. I think it's a, it's a great place. Uh, we've we've wonderful deep ports. We've lots of fresh water. We've plenty of of clean energy, as you've said, Giles. And those are all factors that are important in the development of a hydrogen industry. We've a number of uh, very serious players who are keen to locate in Tasmania and to uh, bootstrap a hydrogen industry here. And we're we're going to do everything we can to accommodate them and to connect them as they arrive. Mm-hmm. And offshore wind. Offshore wind. Um, so uh, we've uh, three renewable uh, zones on land. We've one offshore. Um, that industry is um, in its formative stages here. I think onshore wind is more likely to be developed in the short term 
than mm. offshore wind. I've no doubt it will be a feature of the future, but it, it does depend on uh, the geotechnical uh, seabed and how how possible it is, because that's to you know to install offshore. You'll get scale in both size of turbine and numbers of turbine, but it's a challenging environment to work in. And I think there's a lot of work to be done. Um, I think we will see uh, a renewable energy zone developed here, uh, probably off the west coast of, of Tasmania. Uh, we'll certainly see also closer to, in the Bass Strait, probably closer mm-hmm. to Victoria, we'll see uh, offshore wind farms. But I think there's plenty of good wind resource in Tasmania. There's plenty of land for people to exploit. So I see a lot of development proposals coming on land and perhaps a few coming offshore and eventually getting up. But I think at the moment it's 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 going to be three to one land to offshore. And and, and just quick another question before I hand back to David. Um, where does battery storage fit into a grid, a state grid, which is um, largely sort of already you know, mostly hydro and um, and some you know quite a lot of storage, I guess, which probably exists already. Um, do, do do batteries? form a key role in your vision future? I mean, you've got, yes. you've got potentially for EVs. I mean, maybe you have batteries at a distributed level. Um, how are you thinking about battery storage? Yeah, look, it, it, it's uh, on, on top of everything else, I'm jurisdictional planner here for the power system in Tasmania. Uh, we discharge that responsibility very seriously. Uh, we see a, a, a big future for batteries, either as capital investments that we as networks make for very good reasons um, uh, that goes into our ABS, or as a service we publish from the private, uh, we, we, we purchase from the, the private sector. Um, there's a variety of ways we can use storage. It's a wonderful new developing toolkit that as planners, as main system planners, as power system planners, we can use to get optimal performance of the network. And it's both at the small end of town where you'll have community batteries or perhaps small isolated communities that are better served by uh, a battery system, a renewably powered battery system. Um, And the larger end of town where you have a need for a battery energy storage system that has up to the minute telecommunications and and communication um, that's right in the heart of our network that steps in to uh, either avoid congestion or in an instance where uh, we have a fault, uh, gives us us an alternative and uh, improves our overall performance and particularly reliability. So yeah, I love them. I want more of them and I'm gonna need lots. So Sean, I I, I could ask about all the sort of uh, control services and how you do that. uh, in Tasmania without having much spinning uh, reserve. I guess it comes from the hydro, but I, d- I don't want to ask about that. I'd, I'd rather look forward. You mentioned the, the current uh, regulatory uh, um, agreement framework you have runs for another couple of years, but I think we can see uh, that there will be a big step up in CapEx in, in uh, going forward uh, for TAS networks, and I suspect that's a very exciting and challenging thing, and but have you got a sense of how much bigger the cap? I mean, I think the network side of it's been spending about a hundred million dollars a year in the past five years, which is very modest by network standards. Um, I could I could probably see it going up three, four, five times. Uh, you know, for well, a period. I, well, I I hope not, David. And I I want to draw a distinction here between um, what I'll call um, ordinary capex where we have our existing network and we need to run it and supplement it and invest in it for efficiently. I don't see a significant increase in that category of expenditure. I think uh, we, you know, our aim is to be efficient. It's our aim is to keep the, the, you know, the lid on costs back to that affordability metric that's key for us. I don't see a significant increase in that aspect where there will be an increase, where there's necessarily got to be an investment is more on the ISP end of town, more on the contingent project application, where we very specific projects that are necessary uh, to facilitate load or generation um, 
uh, arriving on the island or interconnection. And they're in a separate category. And that's back to we have to make a once in, in a couple of lifetimes investment across Australia to facilitate the transition to renewable energy. Um, those are going to be done on a case-by-case basis prudently. As you might imagine, there's a number of different scenarios that, that might uh, take place here and different speeds. Will the renewable energy zones arrive before the hydrogen? Will battery of the nation arrive before uh, the renewable energy zones? When will Marnus Link actually be commissioned? We've got to coordinate all of these. And the idea that, you know, the best way to do this, of course, is to look across the scenarios, uh, plan for each of them, see which of these significant investments occur, look at the ones that occur across a majority, if not all of the scenarios, and go, that's the one that's least regrets. So we're going to adopt that least regrets approach to investment prudently, we're going to get the most efficient price we can by running proper uh, competitions, doing really good procurement events, uh, involving the private sector. Um, and we're not going to build these major projects ourselves. We might commission them and we might connect them to our existing assets, but it'll be it'll be out to the tier one suppliers. Yeah, yeah, no, and we'll I, run I, I, fierce I, I, competition I, to deliver those. Yeah, I, I get that, Sean. I get that. And, and I might have mentioned... You know, in a sense, Tasmania's lucky in one way that it uh, 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 has so little rooftop solar in the sense that it's meant that the volumes through your distribution network have stayed flat. Uh, and uh, that means that you haven't had to put the unit price up in the way that everyone else has, which is where there's been about a 10% decline in volumes per connection point. Uh, so that's good. Uh, uh, but just spending one more of our brief time on Marinus Link and we sort of danced around how it could be paid for and it's got to be decided. But in your thinking, I mean, do you just expect Victoria to put its hand up and say it'll fund, I don't know, 50% of it or something? Or do you, would you like the federal government to come in and uh, and say this is a you know nation-building project, uh, here's a billion dollars that we were going to put into COVID relief or something instead, you know, or something like that? I think... Um... All of those things are being talked about from um, um, it certainly is a nation building project, in my view. Uh, but I think the more sustainable way to go about it is to look at a, a benefits uh, model. In other words, the beneficiaries pay. Um, and if you have interconnectors, uh, I, I think inevitably those interconnectors are going to bring benefits beyond the mere two parties or occasionally three parties that are connected. I think it's a question of looking at where the benefits uh, eventuate and making sure those parties pick up a fair part of their of the contribution to costs. And I was quite serious in saying, um, while Tasmania gets benefits on um, from Marinus Link and Victoria gets benefits on Marnus Link, there are benefits, significant benefits, all the way up to Queensland, New South Wales, true into uh, South Australia. So how can uh, a small entity like Tasmania, who's bringing a significant benefit through Marnus Link, pick up something like 50% of the cost when it's only getting, you know, three, four percent of the benefits? relative to some other jurisdictions that are getting, you know, 20, 24% of the benefits. So, yeah. so we, we have to allocate the costs prudently. I, I get that. I'm not arguing about that. It's just the method of doing it. Uh, and, and Well, that's the magic, isn't it? Well, it is because you talk about a benefit basis, but, you know, if Marinus Link doesn't go ahead, it'll be done in the next best way. So it's really the marginal benefits and, and working, you know, like Marinus Link might be great, but it might mean that, I don't know, for instance, part of Snowy, Snowy 3 isn't needed or something like that, or some battery doesn't get built somewhere. It's, it's a very, very complex question to work out those benefits. And it's not something that, uh, I, I don't, you know, anyone can, uh, other than maybe AEMO is... is even well, AEMO has done that job. They've come up with an optimal development path through the integrated system plan that they regularly update. And Marinus Link has featured in that plan for the last number of iterations. And I'm confident we'll be in it into the future. It is the optimal development among some others, 
it is the optimal development path for the overall power system. That's EMO's job. That's the intention of the ISP. Well, I, I agree with that. And, and look, I'm a wonderful supporter of the, in the first tier of ISP cheer squad, don't get me wrong, but, you know, if some state government puts an REZ somewhere and uh, uh, whether it's, uh, you know, all of a sudden it'll be optimal in, in the AEMO ISP as well. So <laughs> let's, let's see how we go. But look, yeah. I, I, I don't, that, yeah. Giles, uh, I, you know, it's all my questions. Thank you very much. There you go. Well, look, I've just got Thank one fun. I just got yeah. one final question, Sean. I couldn't help noticing your accent, um, um, as our <laughs> listeners had as well. Um, you've come from uh, an island, Ireland, um, uh, an island grid with connections um, to nearby. Um, I mean, how similar? <laughs> you, found, you found another one in Tasmania now. Um, I, I, I don't know how similar they are at all. Probably nothing. Oh, so it, I, I, it, Ireland doesn't have really anything. Ireland doesn't have enough uh, as anywhere near the hydro, but. Um, it, it, you uh, know, is, is the comparisons are stark. Um, oh, they, I, 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 I've been driving around wonderful, beautiful Tasmania for the last uh, three weeks. And honestly, it, it, there are times when I have to close my eyes because I think I could be four or five kilometers away from where I was born on the uh, northeast part of Ireland, of the island of Ireland. And uh, But there, there are significant um, um, similarities. Like, the power system in Ireland was originally developed out of a hydro scheme, the Shannon hydro scheme, uh, Ardna Crusher Dam. It was hydro industrialization and it was really a nation building project uh, by a very um, foresightful engineer, one uh, McLaughlin, who uh, in 1927 uh, started that hydro industrialization of Ireland. And it has been the same here in Tasmania. Um, you may also have noticed, um, uh, many of your listeners will be familiar with the uh, north-south divide there's on the island of Ireland. Well, I can tell you there's a north-south divide in Tasmania here. Um, it's called the beer line. To at the north of the beer line, you drink bogues. To the south of the beer line, you drink cascade. So uh, north-south differences as well. But there's also the interconnection and when I started out as a young power system engineer working in the control room in Ireland, uh, we weren't interconnected. In fact, we had two small isolated power systems, uh, Northern Ireland and the Republic of Ireland. And the interconnection between those was unfortunately decommissioned by the Irish Republican Army at one stage. <laughs> so uh, we were running two small systems. We then, you know, I was very happy to play my part in re-interconnecting those two islands, uh, island in power systems on the island of Ireland. And then there was a, a small connection built over to Scotland from Northern Ireland. And I was uh, one of the people who worked long and hard to get a further interconnection between um, just north of Dublin over to Wales uh, with a 400 kV uh, uh, HVDC sub, uh, submar submarine cable. And the reason we put that in was because we had a burgeoning wind resource in Ireland with uh, wind farms being developed onshore, one of the best wind resources in Europe and higher and higher penetrations that we couldn't cope with and we had to interconnect. Now, blow me down, but ain't that a comparison? Ain't that similar? There's a lot of similarities. Yeah. Um, uh, the other thing that's similar, of course, is the wonderful openness and friendliness of the people here in Tasmania and in Ireland and their proclivity to make magnificent whiskey. <laughs> Sounds like you've landed in paradise. Well, I, I, hope you, I hope you can uh, negotiate um, some of the trickier issues there, particularly as it uh, regards the transmission lines and um, some of the issues there. And I hope you may be able to get a satisfactory outcome for everyone and look thank you very much and look good luck with all those um those um yes i mean huge opportunities in tasmania going forward and good luck for with sure. it and thanks for joining the energy insiders podcast my pleasure thank you david thank you giles good to talk and that was uh, Sean McGoldrick, um, the new CEO of Tasmania Networks, um, sounding a little wistful about um, his home island of Ireland. And um, oh, I think we could have rolled that conversation off for quite a long <laughs> Some wonderful anecdotes in there, but pretty interesting position for him to be in. 
Uh, yes, look, Tasmania, as I said, I mean, the, the main thing is this uh, Project Marinus for Tasmania. Tasmania is a, a great place in theory, like North Queensland. It's just a lo- long way or difficult to connect to the rest of the market. Tasmania is not going to pay for uh, the Marinus link, $4 billion project, a lot of money. Uh, and I don't see any of the individual states, Victoria or New South Wales, paying for it either, even if they're going to benefit. So it's going to be a federal government thing or nothing. Mm, they haven't shown a great interest in funding stuff. They expect um, most other people. I mean, we've we've kind of seen this interest about who pays for projects. Firstly, with Project Energy Connect, the new one from New South Wales to South Australia, that was finally resolved with the help of some finance from the Clean Energy Finance Corporation. The new problem, one that's arising now, is HumeLink, which has sort of gone out to, um, which has sort of doubled in prices. Most new transmission links seem to have done over the last couple of years. Plus, there's a billion dollars in offset costs. Um, environmental offset costs so um a four billion dollar bill for someone to pay transmission's very expensive uh, and it's not got cheaper and there are environmental issues um and look there's a conflict of interest as as ever with the federal government i mean it owns snowy uh whilst i'll tell you and probably correctly that will have no influence on whether the decision to own to fund marinus or not the fact is marinus and tasmania are in some senses in competition uh, as, a, as a provider of uh, firm hydro power to the mainland, and you know you've got the owner of one deciding whether it's if that if it does come to the federal government, maybe some other scheme or, or let it get up. Uh, mm. so, and then also, Giles, you know, although we talked about that, it's really as I said, or, or, distribution networks are, are, the, are the part of the market that we don't talk about enough. They're, they're, they're by far the most valuable part of the electricity system. Uh, the wires and poles to the streets are $120 billion worth of uh, market value. Uh, and, and they don't get, which is way more than the generation and retail sector are, are, are worth. Uh, they're in potentially ability to uh, run um, uh, all the behind the meter stuff and orchestrate it. But really, that's not been organised or thought about or planned within the Energy Security Board deliberations or any of the uh, reform at all, how, how that whole model works. Uh, we've had a lot of debate about community batteries, but it turns out when you look at the numbers that they're massively more expensive for one reason or another than uh, installing batteries in your house. So why that should be is, 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 is an interesting question, uh, mm. but certainly the maintenance and installation costs are, are very high. So a lot of things to think about in, in, in all of that. And poor old Tassie Networks, it's a government run and government owned and that doesn't make any money in the end. And yet if it wants to do something, it's going to have to spend a lot of capital, which is going to have to be provided, I guess, in that case by the Tasmanian government. Interesting stuff. And uh, for a full analysis of the uh, networks, um, I think I do invite you to read David Leach's Magnus Opus, uh, which I haven't yet finished editing, but will be edited by the time that you're listening to this. So um, that'll be up there um, and, and have a good look. So, hey, Charles, if anyone can work out what the point of that great Magnus Opus is, I'm, I, they should let me know because by the time I got to the end of it, I'd forgotten what the original question was. I think you just invited them not to read it. But anyway, David, um, I think it's better than that. But anyway, but look, just talking about batteries, um, just a few problems. Um, Vic, the Vic, Vic battery, of course, um, 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 went on fire. They lost two two of those um, megapack units um, probably just over a month ago now, just as they started commissioning. Um, we've got the world's biggest battery, which is a different maker um, over in California, Moss Landing, 400 megawatts or 1,600 megawatt hours. Well, not all of it, but um, the, um, the large part of it um, started overheating last week. Now the sprinklers came on and they shut the thing down and they're just all sitting there looking at it, trying to work out what happened. So... Um, just a few, just a few setbacks. Um, there well, for not the just those, Giles. If you, if you, if you, you know, take a, a bigger picture, you can see that the um, uh, General Motors Chevy uh, uh, Volt has had uh, been had recalls because of LG batteries. L, um, LG battery uh, themselves, as has the uh, Hyundai Kona in Australia. Yes, and so you, it's not that this is. Uh, as I said last time, this is uh, uh, probably a normal quote unquote sort of thing to happen in an emerging technology but it is clear that uh, uh, cell technology is going to have to fully account for this I mean you know LPG tanks uh, uh, have incidents as well as as, as we all know um, it's, it, it's just something to keep an eye on 
Absolutely. Um, another thing to keep an eye on, I think it's time to exercise a few people's minds, um, is the the next edition of the uh, what we used to call the COAG Energy Ministers Meeting. It's now called the National Energy Council or whatever it is, um, behind closed doors and sworn to secrecy. But they're going to have another look at the ESB thing next um, next week. I'm not really too sure what we're expecting from them, apart from an agreement that the ESB should continue working on it. But um, Well, Charles, um, Michael Marzengarb, didn't he... Um, um... Uh, stated a report on a, a conference that the Clean Energy Council held on storage where Kerry Schott said that her, her view, the capacity market mechanism, wasn't going to work to protect coal plants at all. Yes, I'm not too sure if everyone in the market is actually convinced of that. No, I'm not too sure they are either. Uh, I'm not too sure. But, I mean, she, you know, I take uh, what Kerry says very, very seriously. I must say I think she's a person of, uh, you know, unquestioned integrity. And if she says that, uh, uh, and I also heard uh, we also – you ran a webinar where Matt Keane said, you know, uh, words that he wasn't massively in support. You know, he's made fairly strong statements about – uh, there's no need to preserve coal. Well, absolutely. He he seems he seems dead set, just sort of determined to go it alone. I mean, very much like a um, sort of a, a, um, a command control um, energy economy in New South Wales for the next ten years, in the way that he's sort of rolling up the renewable energy zones. But at least there's a plan. There is a plan, uh, and it's great to have a plan and, and a team that supports the plan. Um, mm. Mm. Anyway, okay, and nuclear submarines. So, um, just the variation of the batteries on wheels. We're going to have um, nuclear power things out and out in the water, but um, I'm not too sure whether we're going to get that on shore. Well, Giles, I won't say too much about it, but because it's not really my topic of interest, but I can say I think the previous submarine program was one of the worst uh, wastes of public money I've ever heard of, and that's uh, that's a very stiff competition to be in. Um, uh, and you know, we're buying... just going to hear all about baseload and nuclear, and um, you know, as a, well, uh, nuclear powered submarines uh, are, are buying them from the USA technology. You, you know, I mean, we'll be punching above our weight, and that generally ends badly. Uh, that's why you have boxing classes. But nevertheless, I, I personally uh, think it's a very well, defensible idea uh, to make a joke. Haha! Time to go. I think it's very much time to go. We'll be long retired if and when we ever see them. But um, there you go. Okay, David, thank you very much. Um, thank you very much for Sean um, McGoldrick um, for joining our podcast today. Really enjoyed that chat, actually. Um, and also, of course, to our sponsors, um, Evergen and Pylon, for your ongoing support. And uh, we'll be back again this time next week. Bye for now. Energy Insiders was brought to you by Evergen the market-leading renewable energy software business that optimises residential and commercial solar and battery systems. Evergen enables large numbers of systems to operate as a single fleet, so network operators can use them as a virtual power plant, generating significant value for consumers, network operators and the energy system as a whole. Evergen Software is powering the energy system of the future. Energy Insiders was also brought to you by Pylon. Pylon provides easy-to-use, solid design software for installers and retailers with pay-as-you-go pricing, no monthly cost and no locking contracts. Join Australia's top solar companies who trust Pylon to design high-resolution, CEC-ready solar proposals.